0: Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. Not for the letters and sentences in a book, but for uh, the living word that changes us and transforms us. We pray for your help this evening as we look at a particularly um, strange context for our world, Um, a letter written so long ago in much different circumstances. And uh, Lord, we pray for understanding and we pray for wisdom and how to translate um, what Paul is talking about into our day. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would open us and shield us from preconceived notions that we bring into this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are joining us for the first time, or maybe you've just been gone a couple weeks, um, I, just a reminder that we are studying uh, the book of Ephesians, a book written about 60 to 62 A.D., a long time ago, by a man named Paul, who was a prisoner. And he is writing a letter, uh, probably a circular letter, to a bunch of different churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, and uh, it is an incredible letter. It is an idealistic letter. It is a letter about what the church really is in God's eyes, not about what it looks like to most of us. Uh, and this week, we are actually in part two of a three-part mini-series. I know, like miniseries, when you hear that, it's like some like television series something like that but paul has been paul has been talking about uh, since chapter 5:18 this being filled with the spirit of the living god be filled with the spirit and as we learned when we when we talked about that actually pastor jeff talked about that it being filled with the Spirit, when, when Paul says that, is actually in the passive. It says, be filled. So it's good news that God actually fills us with His Spirit. Like, you and I can't do that. We can't make ourselves, like, get filled up somehow. Like, it just by trusting in God, it, it happens. Be filled with the Spirit. And he says that when you are filled with the life of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, and when the character of God, all of that stuff is pumping through your metaphorical heart... And circulating through your metaphorical veins, five things are going to result in your life. Five participles. The first, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, usually means biblical encouragement. Like I don't go around talking, quoting psalms all the time to my friends, but filled with the Spirit nonetheless. Uh, singing did that. Making music. Giving thanks, it's one of the marks of the Spirit, of being filled with the Spirit. And the fifth and final one is a mutual submission to one another. A mutual submission. Men submitting to women, women submitting to men, uh, cross-cultural, cross-class, all that mutual submission to one another. And Paul talks about three particular categories where living this mutual submission happens in the practical day-to-day areas of life. He talks about three of them. The first is in the marriage relationship, the second is in the parent-child relationship, and the third is in the slave-master relationship. Now, last week we pointed out the obvious that, well, not everyone here is married. So how practical is that? Not everyone here has children. How practical is that? And nobody here better be a slave or have a slave. So that's not very practical in the 21st century, is it? Well, if you were here last week, you'll recall that in ancient Uh, Near Eastern and Mediterranean ethics, there were three main topics that philosophers and politicians and ethicists talked about. Here are the three. Marriage relationships, child-parent relationships, and slave-master relationships. So Paul is talking in categories that were kind of already established in the culture. And the reason those categories in particular were so important in the Greco-Roman world was because they believed the family unit was not only the bedrock of the society and the bedrock of culture, they thought it was the bedrock of the politic of the Roman Empire. The whole system of family, of how husbands and wives relate to one another, parents and children relate to one another, and, and sadly, in their culture, slavery was the context of their whole organization. Rome would not exist without slaves. Well, here comes this guy named Paul, teaching that he's following a guy who got killed by the Roman Empire, who rose from the dead and is now king. Resurrected from the dead and is now king. And furthermore, this king says that in his kingdom, there's no more distinctions between Jew and Gentile, and slave and free, and men and women all have equal access to the Father. So in this king's kingdom that Paul is preaching, all the walls are coming down. Well, you can see how such beliefs might have been perceived as threats to the Roman Empire because it's threatening the family system as you know it. In the Roman world, men and women were like this. So if Paul is saying there's no more distinction that's messing with the family. And in the Roman world, children and parents were like this. And if you're messing with those distinctions, you're messing with Rome. And in the Roman world, slaves and masters were like this. And Paul is saying, no, I'm flattening all of this out in the gospel. If you cross Rome, let me put it this way, if you cross the family system of Rome, you cross Rome. If you cross Rome, you get squished like a bug. So Paul, ever the master of contextualizing the gospel, of speaking the gospel into the culture and the context, he uses the three pagan categories of ethics, marriage relationships, parent-child relationships, slave-master relationships. He uses those categories to do two things. One, he wants to protect the reputation of Christianity. What he wants to do is say, hey, wait a minute, don't kill us. We're not here to totally like, overthrow your empire. Okay. In fact, we're going to work within the categories that you've established. But the second thing he wants to do is to subtly subvert the Roman system of family. And he wants to replace it with a healthier, Jesus-centered view. Would you stand with me, please, as we read Ephesians 6, 1-4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the lord the word of the lord you may be seated Our text begins with a strong command for children to obey their parents. And you'll notice that the language is much stronger. It says, children obey your parents. That's much stronger language than last week's when we were talking about husbands and wives. Nowhere in the New Testament are wives told to obey their husbands. That may come as a shock to you. Nowhere in the New Testament. This is stronger language. Children, obey your parents. But if the Romans were looking for evidence that Christianity was trying to ruin their little family system, they wouldn't find it in that first line. Children, obey your parents. Everyone in the Roman Empire would be like, yeah, that's right, that's how how we roll. Children, obey the parents, right? Uh, But in a moment, I'm going to show you just how subversive Paul's teaching is here. But first, we need to get a better grip of the cultural situation. To put it bluntly, you and I would be absolutely appalled at how children were thought of and treated in the first century Roman world. The power of the father, in particular, but parents in general, over their children was almost unlimited, almost unlimited. The head male of the household could determine if a child lived. And infanticide, letting your child just be out in the wilderness. Was common, especially if you maybe your first child was a girl and um, you wanted a boy, and the next one was a girl. The father had that power to say, "I don't want it." And you know what would happen is they would put them out in the wilderness, either to die, or most unfortunate. Well, I don't know what's more unfortunate. Other times they would be rescued and put into slavery. The father could decide who the child married, what their profession would be. Fathers could sell their children into slavery at any point, like a 10-year-old. You could say, ah, slavery. Um, Many wealthy mothers hired wet nurses to, do, to, to deal with their kids. Like, so don't think that the moms are, Oh, husband, you know, honey, you're being so mean. I mean, it was a very cold kind of society. So they could just you know, kind of hire the help and not deal with the kids. Think of what we know today about attachment disorders and things like that. How when you don't get that initial contact, that love, that bonding with the parent, even just for the first few weeks of your life. And then you wonder why there's so many Roman emperors messed up in the head. But anyway, uh, and it wasn't just Greeks and Romans. In roughly 180 B.C., Yeshua, which is actually Jesus, the son of Sirach, so not Jesus the Christ, this other dude named Jesus from 180 B.C., Jesus, son of Sirach, wrote what is now known as Ecclesiasticus. It's called, translated, wisdom. It's not Scripture, It's in what's called the Apocrypha. It's in a set of writings that's between uh, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. So we don't count this as Scripture, but what the Apocrypha is good for is for helping us understand how people thought in those days and years before Jesus came. Check this out. This is from Sirach, chapter 30, verses 1 through 11. He who loves his son will whip him often in order that he may rejoice in the way he turns out. He who disciplines his son will profit by him and will boast of him among his acquaintances. He who teaches his son will make his enemies envious and will glory in him in the presence of friends. The father may die and yet he's not dead. For he has left behind one like himself. While alive he saw and rejoiced, and when he died he was not grieved. He has left, left him behind an avenger against his enemies, and one to repay the kindness of his friends. He who spoils the son will bind up his wounds, and his feelings will be troubled at every cry. A horse that is untamed turns out to be stubborn. A son unrestrained turns out to be willful. Pamper a child and he will frighten you. Play with him, and he will give you grief. Do not laugh with your child, lest you have sorrow in him, and in the end gnash your teeth. And give no authority to him in his youth, and do not ignore his errors. So pretty much whip them, don't play with them, point out where they've done wrong, mold them through coercion and violence. And what is the motivation there? All the motivation is that so you will leave a legacy, so that you will have an insurance policy, so that son will carry on for you, and so that you'll look good to your friends. There's nothing in that wisdom about the child's worth. I'm in no way suggesting that every parent was abusive or even that the majority of families were that horrific. But what I'm trying to show us is that the general attitude toward children was one of disdain, of ambivalence, of seen, not heard. And as Ecclesiasticus shows us, child-rearing seems to be motivated to benefit the parents. It's not for the child. So it's against this backdrop of culture that James Montgomery Boyce writes. Nothing in all of history has done so much for the elevation and development of children as Christianity. He, he goes on in our study of the preceding passage, Ephesians five twenty-two through thirty-three. I pointed out the great advance for women produced by Christianity, but that elevation, great as it was, is overshadowed by improvement in the status. Children. So let's make a few observations. First, Ephesians is a letter intended to be read in worship, right? At churches. Notice what Ephesians does not say. Parents, tell your children to obey. So, what this means is, what this implies is that children were in worship. The children were in the same place as the parents. And you know what also this implies is when it says, uh, you know, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. It implies that husbands and wives, that's men and women, in one room together. Slaves and masters worshiping together. Those distinctions, those barriers were not broken in other parts of Roman society. You would not have men and women meeting in the same place. Because remember what I said last week women were seen as the source of all sin, and it was all their fault that, and, you know, it's ridiculous, but uh, it's, Rome was very segregated. You don't have kids in, in, your, in your special meetings, you don't have slaves with masters, but in the church, you begin to see these walls coming down. Second, the term for children in Greek here is technon, it has more to do with the position. age. So what I mean is, when I hear the word child, I think of a person like under 16 or something like that. But that's not necessarily what it's talking about. Uh, You are a child. Like, how else did you get here, unless you're like Anakin Skywalker or Jesus. But I'm a child, right? You're a child. So, technon, that Greek word, it could be talking about adult children too. Now, here's what I think. I think it is referring to the whole gamut, adult children and little children, but I think it it maybe the emphasis is on littler kids. Because later on in the text, it talks about how parents should be training up their kids. Like you don't usually train up your 60-year-old son when you're 80. You know, it doesn't work out that way. Paul gives three reasons why children ought to obey. First, he builds a bridge with the Gentiles, and he appeals to natural law. He says, first of all, you should obey your parents' kids because it's right. Because it's right. It's the right thing to do. In every culture that we've ever discovered, there's some kind of hierarchy between parents and children. Like, you never meet a culture where like, oh, the baby's born and now it's king of our land. Like, that would be maybe kind of awesome. Is that like uh a... what do you call it? Uh, Pinocchio, where they go to that place where all the kids run it. it sounds like chaos. But anyway, uh, he, he, they're appealing to ancient philosophy. An- ancient philosophers always had a hierarchy of parents over children. And even before Greek philosophy, you had Confucius, centuries before that, who um, uh, you know taught that children were to obey their parents. So in our culture, usually the new thing is kind of like... Authoritative, especially to younger generations, like if it's new, it's cool, it must be right. In the ancient world, new things were suspect. If you could prove that something was old and traditional, then that was authoritative. So what Paul's doing here is he's making a bridge to his Gentile audience. He's saying, hey... Obey your parents because it's the right thing to do. It's always been the right thing to do. Second, he appeals to Scripture. It's biblical. Hey, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Children, uh, honor your father and mother, right? Uh, And he says it has a promise associated with it. In the original text, the promise is that those who honor their father and mother would live long and, and, and prosper in the land, in Israel. Okay, but notice how Paul has actually changed the words here. He's changed it to... Honor your father and mother is the first commandment with a promise so that you will live long on the earth. He's expanded it from just Jewish people and just Israel, just the promised land, to every follower of Jesus, no matter where you live. It's pretty awesome little theological side note there. Third, Paul appeals to the gospel. Children are supposed to submit to their parents as unto the Lord. So what that means is, you know, there's no perfect parents, right? When we, when we submit to our parents, we do it as unto Jesus. When we disobey our parents, we're disobeying Jesus. So it's a, it's a discipleship thing. It's actually like Jesus is more important than our family relationship. And I know kind of we're an like uber family society, uh, but kind of sometimes we idolize our families, idolize our kids. We need to be careful of that. Because Jesus, in the Gospels, he's always saying, you know, hey, you got to put me first. You've got to put me first. So obey your parents as unto the Lord. And when you don't obey them, it's like you're not obeying Jesus. Unless, of course, you've got to kind of nuance that. Like if your parents tell you to do something totally immoral or wrong, um, you know, you should disobey. Kind of like the whole Daniel uh, disobeying the king because he was wouldn't let him worship God. So, which brings us to another dilemma. How long are we to obey our parents? For example, I am a child of Richard and Kay Eltrich. They are my parents. They are alive. They live in Gig Harbor, Washington. Uh, How long and in what way am I supposed to obey them? Uh, They're my parents and I'm their child, but I'm also 37 years old, married with two kids and a third on the way, and a pastor of an awesome church in Bellingham, Uh, am I supposed to obey them like I did when I was three, or ten, or sixteen? In the the first century, the paterfamilias, the head male of the household, might be in charge until he was 65 years old. And if they had kids when they're young, then he's in charge of like 45-year-olds, 47-year-olds. Right? That's not the same as it is in our culture. In our culture, when uh, we allow 18-year-olds to vote, in in many situations, we count an 18-year-old as an adult. So I think that this command to obey our parents has got to be inherently culturally nuanced, okay? What makes sense in our world, In our culture, uh, adolescence seems to be extended more and more. So my great-grandfather migrated from Germany. He came over to the West. By the time he was 20, he was already a commercial logger, and then he moved further west over to Fox Island, Washington. He was a commercial fisherman. By the time he was like in his mid-20s. And like when I was 19, I joined the Coast Guard. By the time I was 20, I was... In charge of a large portion of making a ship work and I had a gun that I would take on boardings and I saw my first cadaver that uh, a botched rescue where someone had drowned and we so encountering death and so sometimes we have situations where we grow up fairly quickly right But today, adolescence can be extended. It's a growing phenomenon. So parents and children need to figure out what's realistic. So like if you're 30 and you're living at your parents' house, there's probably got to be some rules that you're going to need to follow, like some obedience stuff, right? You're going to have to obey the rules of the house or move out. The underlying stance between children to parents is honor them. It's honor them. Okay, So maybe in my situation, uh, I I don't ask permission every time, you know, can I go to a movie tonight, Mom? But I I try and honor my family. I try and honor my parents. And I think, you guys, I think this is one one of the issues of my generation and below. Did you know that there's over 78 million baby boomers born? And I'm generation X, whatever that means. There are less than 40 million of me. And one of the issues of our day is how do we honor our parents who are aging and ailing? And let's expand this a little bit because we we talk a lot about being a Christian church, right? And we're brothers and sisters. Hey, what's up, brother? What's up, sister? There's going to be people in our congregations whose kids can't take care of them, who don't have kids, whose kids won't take care of them. How are we going to honor our spiritual parents in the Lord? Right? It's an issue we're going to have to work through. We have to talk about it. Now, some of you are already, I see evidence all over the place. You know, Ryan and Christine, I see how you guys are already so giving and working through dealing and loving your parents. Christine, and I, I watch Gary and Ann walk through this right now. Anne losing her father this year, and, and Gary's mother having some hard times, and now Ann's mother having some hard times. Chris Sanders probably right now in California dealing with her mom who has failing health. How is it that we are going to honor our mothers and fathers, biological and spiritual? Are we going to honor them with our pocketbooks and with our hospitality? Are we going to honor them by advocating sometimes in politics, Voting for rights for them that is going to mean less money for the stuff we want. Those are issues that we need to deal with together. And what about the obvious elephant in the room? There's no perfect parents. Some have endured extreme abuses. How are you going to honor your parents? What does that look like? Others have parents who just remain difficult to get along with. I mean, let's be honest, like, the best parents, the best kids are hard to get along with sometimes. What about parents who make poor financial decisions, who put you in a pinch? What does honor look like? Well, Ephesians, frankly, doesn't help us. It's not a counseling text. It's an ideal text. It tells us what we ought to do, what our heart stance should be. But real life is complicated. Even the best relationships with parents can be frustrating. So first, in cases of abuse, you need to figure out what's appropriate, what boundaries are appropriate for you and your health and the health of your nuclear family. And being part of your parents life as an abuse victim, like face-to-face kind of life, that might not be realistic. That might not be realistic ever in your lifetime. Healing takes a long time, and sometimes it takes longer than we have on earth. So I want you to hear that. I want you to receive that if that is you. You know, It strikes me, no matter what the relationship is, it strikes me as healthy not to gloss over pain, but to try and also see the positive. And (laughs) maybe this is a pastor thing, but the image of a funeral comes to mind. I participated uh, personally in some very difficult funerals. You know, it's great when like wonderful Christian people die and they've just got this whole legacy and everyone's talking about all the great things they did. Like Those are the easy ones. But everybody dies. And sometimes you have to do a funeral for somebody who's died who has just left a wake of destruction in their path. And you look around at the faces who are gathered at the memorial and you're saying, oh, he sexually abused that person or cheated on that person. And as a pastor, like, I'm about truth. I, I, I can't just, you can't just pretend that stuff didn't happen. So, so the way I approach that is I say, hey, let's be honest today. We're remembering this person. And there are some of you in this room or this graveside that this person has damaged. And you need to say that. You need to, to not pretend it didn't happen. But then there's a part called the eulogy, which just means thankful speech. And what are, everybody has some kind of good story, some kind of positive thing that you can at least mention and talk about. And so I think of that, that image of being real with what really has happened in, in our parent-child relationships, and also trying as a discipline to say, what is the thankful speech? What are the thankful things that I have with this person, the, th- the, the memories I am thankful for? What part of their lives, if any, can you honor? Well, up to this point, Paul's readers may not have found this message too stunning. Sounds kind of run-of-the-mill. Some new twists and turns for sure, but it's, it's the next portion of his teaching that would turn the Roman family on its head. You see, in the ancient household codes, remember I told you there were three? There's the marriage code, and the parent-child code, and the slave-master code. Well, in all those ancient writings, the people that are mentioned are the wives and the children, and the slaves. The people in power never get mentioned in those codes. They don't have really any responsibilities because they have privilege. And you notice what Paul does is he takes those same three categories, but he makes it harder on the husbands, he makes it harder on the parents, and he makes it harder on the masters. Why? Because when Jesus enters your life, power comes with responsibility. Privilege, you know... It, it, it comes with a cost. I want to pause here and just express my feelings of utter inadequacy because we're about ready to talk about parents raising your kids. And I honestly don't think that I, should, I am going to talk authoritatively on this because I've never raised kids to adulthood. I mean, my oldest child is six. All right? But there's two consolations when we come to a text like this. First of all, as a church, we're committed to preaching through Scripture and not picking and choosing the stuff we like. So when we come to a text like this, we don't get to squirm out of it. I don't get to squirm out of it. So that's one thing. The second consolation is that Paul, who wrote this letter, wasn't even married, and he didn't have kids. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick to the text, I'm going to try and exegete it for us, bring out the original meaning, and then I'm going to share, I'm going to share some of what I am trying to do and some of the things that I've reflected on for my family, and I want you to, in fact, I'm going to just come right here for a minute, I'm a fellow journeyer with you, okay? So as I make these suggestions, it's all kind of we talk, like, let's try this together because I don't know what I'm doing, Okay, so, to the text. In verse 4, Paul uses a two-pronged approach. He first addresses a negative and then a positive. So negatively, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke uh, your children to anger. Now, in the original language, fathers is synonymous in Scripture with parents. So you could read parents, don't provoke your children to anger. The reason I think it says fathers is because back then, fathers had kind of the power and they were the ones most likely to do the disciplining. But thankfully, in our culture, we're becoming more like this in the household. Men and women taking more. Women are, are are getting more power in our culture. So women, that's good. But as you get more power, you also become more responsible. So I think it might be better for our culture to say, parents, don't provoke your children to anger. Does that make sense? Because, um, you know, back in that day, you didn't... we didn't really have single moms. Like you might have a mother who had been divorced or her husband died, but she would immediately fall under her father's household and her father would then be the master over her parent-child relationship. Now our culture, we do have single parenting and things like that, so you have mothers nowadays who have total power over their kids. So we need to change, we need to change the, the perspective to meet our day. So parents, moms and dads, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't demean your kids. Don't intimidate them. Don't break down your kids. In the ancient world, children were seen as possessions that parents could mold through violence and harsh discipline. And Paul here reminds parents to raise them in the Lord. Why? Because kids are not yours and mine. Kids are the Lord's. And if you have a child, or you're raising a child, you are a steward, not a master of that child. And here's the really freaky thing. I think we are going to give account one day for how we raise these kids in the Lord. We are not, hear me? (laughs) We're not to give account on how our kids turn out. We can't control that. You know, even with little ones, they already have their own personalities and their own minds, right? You can't control how they're going to turn out. What we'll be held responsible for is how we raise them in the Lord. That ought to feel a little convicting if it does. The very fact that the majority in the Western, United, in Western Europe, United States, and Canada would be appalled by child abuse, the majority would be appalled by child abuse, appalled by child slavery... Infanticide would be inconceivable. All of those stances that we have, that's evidence of residual Christianity having worked through our culture so long ago. We might be a, a post-Christendom world right now where most people don't go to church, but we still live with, you know, on that wave of, that's not right to abuse kids. It's not right to sell them into slavery. Like, the majority of people would think that's, that's the way it is. Now, many of you who are parents... Grandparents, aspiring parents, may have endured abuse. And violence, and demeaning violence, I'm talking verbal and physical, is perpetuated by modeling. We usually parent and lead how it was modeled for us by our family. So this is a call to break the chains of generational violence, of generational abuse of speech. And you know when I say that, like, I don't think you're going to hear this sermon, and if you have a problem with anger, you know, you inherited maybe from your family system, or you've got a problem with, maybe you have some, an abusive streak, like, I don't think you're, oh, I'm glad you said that, now I'm going to change. Like, you might need counseling. You might need some spiritual direction, a combination of those things. What I'm saying is, that's the direction we need to be headed. And the responsibility, friends, is yours. The responsibility is yours. It's not going to be a magical, you're going to walk out of this room and be healed. Well, what, what, if, that, if that's you and you're struggling with that, what's the next step? What's the next step towards healing? Because it's not an excuse to say, hey, that's how I was raised. That's how mom and dad did it. Once, so, I should have told you to plug your ears. Because once you've heard the gospel, once you're following Jesus, like, we don't get that excuse anymore. Now, on the positive side, Paul calls parents to instruct their children in the Lord. Now, there are two ways I err in doing this. On the one hand, I can be far too demanding and expect children to conform to my set ways of connecting with Jesus. Um, Okay. So in any given sermon or class about worship, I'll probably teach you that everybody has their own way of relating to God. So think like Gary Thomas's book Sacred Pathways. That was a big hit around here. Um, you know, some people uh, connect with God in nature, and that's kind of their pathway, and some people through spontaneous prayer, and some people through service. For me, uh, I connect with God when I study academically and when I have silence and solitude, right? So that's my, my main pathway. So I can't. I can't expect my kids to want to sit through. Hey, we're going to have family devotionals around the dinner table, and you're going to sit still, and you're going to listen to this, and we're going to be silent before you touch your food. If you're even trying to get them to pray before they touch their food, is crazy. Um, so I've tried that, and I recognize that my kids are each wired differently. And guess what? It's my job as the person with power. To figure out my children, to get to know my kids and their personality traits and help them figure out their way to relate to Christ. Because it's not going to be my way. Like, I'm not, hey, kids, come with me and sit on my lap in the morning and we'll meditate together. Like, that would be my dream. But that doesn't happen. So, on the other hand, we can be far too passive. Well, I tried the whole meditate on my lap thing and it didn't work, so pff, forget about it. These kids are going to hell. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can't just you can't just give up, right? Like raising kids is a serious thing. We're teaching them the ways of Jesus. The home is the main context of discipleship. Uh, Gordon Smith, who's a professor at Regent College, is also like a lot of his area of research and his PhD is conversion narratives. How do people come to Christ? How do they grow in Christ? You know what he says. The family is the most effective discipleship context in the world. The family. I mean, youth pastors, uh, people who have done youth work, you know the statistics. Like if kids don't come to Christ by 18, was like 4, 6% as an adult likely to come to know Jesus. Like it's really not good. The family is the number one context most effective in the world. Katie read earlier from Psalm 78. I wanted that psalm read because of how it tells the elders in the community to pass on the stories of God to the next generation. We need to be storytellers of God's work in the world and maybe more importantly of God's work in our lives. We need to tell those stories to our kids. Do your kids know your testimony or the appropriate parts? I was thinking about that this week. I'm not sure... That my kids have even heard that story. And certainly, you know, Sophia's old enough to comprehend that. Why is that? Why, why am I not a better storyteller about me? And even more vital than telling the story is living the story. So a year ago, uh, we were blessed by my parents to be able to go and stay for free in Hawaii. Stella was two years old, and so her first, was her first, I don't know, but her first airplane ride that she comprehended and Stella can tell you to this day, every time she sees an airplane, she thinks it's going to Hawaii. She says, I remember I got on that airplane, and I got gum, and I sat with my lammy, that's her stuffed animal. And she can tell you what kind of juice she had. She can tell you what shows she watched on my little iPhone. Okay? And how is it that she remembers all those details from when she was two? Why? Because her world is tiny. Like, that's a major percentage of her life. Well, what was I thinking about? Well, Corey and I were figuring out, do we get them packed? Do we have enough diapers? Do we have transportation? Uh, What are we going to eat? When are we going to eat? Are they going to take naps today? Oh my gosh, what if they don't take a nap? What if they blow up? It's like, when you get older and you get more responsible, your world is so much bigger. Uh, To put it bluntly, like, my kids are a much smaller percentage of my mental pie then, like, I'm a huge percentage of their life. Like, they live at home, they go to school, they go to church. That's it. So my point is, your kids are watching you. And they're picking it up. They are picking up you living the story or not living the story. They learn our habits, our little social cues, how we relate to people. And guess what? If you don't have kids and you're zoning out, come back. If you don't have kids and you're zoning out, you are part of the church. You are my kids' spiritual mother, spiritual father, spiritual brother, spiritual sister. And when they get older and their pie gets a little bit more broad, and they get 12, 16, and they get Facebook or whatever is out there, they're gonna look at you and they're gonna see your profile and they're gonna say oh my gosh they have a life outside of church like you know, little kids think like their teachers live at kindergarten or something you know like do they have any like it just freaked Sophia out one time she saw her uh, preschool teacher at starbucks like oh, how come you're not at school well, it's like sunday <laughs> but you know our kids are gonna figure out like you have a different lot. Li- you have a life and how is it that your life is portrayed So it strikes me as vital, vital, if my children's world is small and I have responsibility for their training, then I need to model what I want them to learn. Maybe more importantly than what I say is how I live. So here's some (laughs) humble suggestions that I don't do very well all the time. Okay? What does my lifestyle say about what's really important in my life? I think, unfortunately, my kids would say work is important in Daddy's life. Now, I like the work that I do. I think it's kingdom work. But they think that that's... I mean, that's the majority of what I do. We were watching baseball the other day. Uh, Sophia says, hey, Daddy, how come you're not on the Mariners? I said, well, I was trying to save face. Well, they're, they're much younger than Daddy, most of them. <laughs> well, how come you don't play... Baseball. I said, well, I did when I was a kid. I'm trying to deflect, right? She kept pressing. I'm like, well, you know, honey, I'm not that good of an athlete. Like, they are, to get professional baseball, you have to be an elite athlete and have special skills. And, you know, honey, everyone was born with different skills. That's just not my, my thing. Well, what are your skills, Daddy? That's a good question. Um, well, you know, I'm called, I'm called to preach and, 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 I, and, I, and I like to pastor. I think that those are my callings, my skills. And she, <laughs> she says, You're good at typing, too. (laughs) So, yeah. Anyway, what does my lifestyle say is important to my kids? Uh, For example, church involvement. Like, they're watching us. The piece of the pie of home life, church life, school life, that's their three big things. And so, am I skipping fellowship with my brothers and sisters because... You know, the Sounders game is on, or because I feel like it, or, uh, you know, am I allowing, like, as my kids get older, these are, des- these are decisions we're going to have to make. Am I going to allow sports or dance or those kind of things take precedence over church? Or, or are we going to put our foot down and say, you know what, we want you to, to have different experiences, but if you're on select soccer and they have Sunday games, sorry, we're, we're going to not do that. You know, those are decisions that we're going to have to make. Am my modeling... Um, growth? Am I growing? Do I have a relationship with Jesus worth talking about? Because like, our kids are not dumb. And they will pick up on whether or not my prayers are sincere or not. Like, am I praying even at the dinner table? You know how we we get into the ruts of our set prayers? Does it seem when I pray like I know the person I'm talking to? Or is it just like, let's get this through so I can eat? Because they're picking up on those types of things. Am I modeling prayer? Am I modeling a love for God's word? A love for God's people? Am I giving sacrificially and regularly? Do I help my kids learn the value of giving? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Am I giving my kids experiences in service? like taking them on the garbage cleanup and explaining that this isn't just fun with your friends picking up trash and finding worms and stuff, but this is you know beautifying our neighborhood because we think God loves His creation. Um, Sarah and I are in conversation about having some of our older little ones serve in ways like handing out bulletins and taking, being part of the worship life of the church. You know, As the team was practicing, you've got Zoe and Stella up here kind of pretending to sing in the microphone. Heck, some of our kids could be doing this stuff participating in the life of the church? And if you're married, are you modeling love and mutual submission toward your spouse? Our kids learn how to relate to the opposite sex by watching us. You know, I want my daughters to expect that a man is going to treat them with dignity and honor and courtesy. And if I don't treat Corey with dignity and honor and courtesy, it's going to lower the bar of what they expect in a man. And maybe the most important stance of all is for us to tell the truth. And I mean, of course, truth in everything, but I'm talking about being truthful about ourselves. You know, kids need to know that mom and dad have struggles too when it's appropriate. And I mean that, like when it's appropriate. And and kids need us to apologize to them when we're wrong. When we've... Maybe even been right, but we've come at them a little too harshly, raised our voice too much, been too harsh. You know, they need, to, they need us to model humility and ask for forgiveness. And they need to hear and witness how Jesus has changed our lives. Jesus rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life, yes, but that we could also have a full and abundant life now. And what Paul is doing is reminding us here that through faith in Jesus, we can reimagine what family, what this parent-child relationship can look like. We can reimagine how in the Lord it can look like to raise up the next generation of disciples. And I just invite you, if you feel as inadequate as I do, either as a real parent or as a spiritual brother, sister, or parent, uh, I invite you to join me in prayer. All joking aside, Father, sometimes I find it incredible, almost question your wisdom in letting us have kids. I think about um, my own brokenness and inadequacy, and I imagine most of us feel that way a lot of the time. And I pray... Lord that you would fill us with your spirit that the fruit of your spirit that uh, the power of your spirit the wisdom of your spirit would pump through our heart and our veins that you would change us that you would help us to be forgiving and generous and honor our father and mother biological and spiritual I pray for healing where there is deep brokenness, Lord, in those relationships. And I pray, Lord, as your church, that you would help us to see children as gifts, as blessings, and as yours. Lord, give us great patience. Give us great vision for their lives, Lord. Help us to see and discern where you're working in their lives and to help give voice to you as you show up even in their relatively small world at this time. I pray that you would help us make you a big piece of their pie. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming in the flesh, for dying the death that we deserve, for defeating our old enemy death by raising from the dead. And we are so thankful that you reign now and forever. Help us to trust you. Amen.